from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschalette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Janet Kahn on September 22, 2020. From 1976 to 1983, Janet directed the program in counseling psychology at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. From 1983 to 2010, she served in the research department at the International Headquarters of the Baha'i Faith in Haifa, Israel. Janet has published several books. Her latest collaborative effort is called A World Without War, Abdu'l-Baha and the Discourse for Global Peace. I started the interview by asking Janet where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I was born in Sydney, Australia in the early years of World War II. My family moved around a bit. For a while we had a small farm and then uh, my folks bought a general store in a coastal area. I returned to Sydney to go to university and then in 1963 I began a long period of living overseas. In fact I've lived overseas for at this point more than half my life. I lived in England, I lived in the United States and I lived in Israel. For, for quite a long period of time and finally came back to Australia in 2010. My religious background, my mother was a Catholic and so we children were brought up as Catholics. I went to a Catholic school until the last two years of high school when there was no longer a Catholic school available in the small town we were living. I was a practicing Catholic but not very thoughtful about Catholic perspective and a Catholic way of life. You know, it was just sort of the way it was. And it wasn't really until I went to university and started on my travels that I became aware in more detail of different ways of being, traditions of different cultures that I really became somewhat interested in religion. And I was while I was in the United States that I, that I investigated the Baha'i faith more seriously and accepted to become a member in about 1965. And so what was your reason for coming to the United States and how was that first contact with the Baha'i faith? What were the circumstances around that? My purpose was to do some more study, which I ultimately did. But I had already had contact with Baha'is. I met Baha'is at Sydney University. Once you meet Baha'is, it seems like you trip over them everywhere you are. <laughs> I met some Baha'is in London, where I lived for a couple of years. But I was not really looking for a new way of living. 
I was busy. It was the the swinging 60s in London as well as in the United States. And I think it was not until I got to the University of Michigan where I began to hang out with Baha'is, so the group of them, and uh, that, I think, made the difference. Did you see your life gradually or your life's perspective gradually changing during those years as you were associating more and more with the Baha'is until you actually became a Baha'i? I think the thing that really impressed me about the Baha'is was the way in which they acted on their principles. I had the opportunity of attending a Baha'i event in the southern part of the United States at the end of 1964 where there were African-Americans and ordinary other kinds of Americans present. And there was something about the interactions and the real friendship between the various elements that were present at this event that brought home to me the fact that there was something in this religion that had the ability to bring people together. And I think that that was very striking. And in a sense, I felt a commitment then to really study its teachings, to understand more of them. And it was after that I read quite widely and ultimately uh, came to the conclusion that it made sense for me. And Janet, you've written a number of books over the years. Was writing something that developed within you when you were growing up? I grew up in a, a family of readers. We were all we all had library cards, which we used very frequently. The other thing, this was back in the fifties and the sixties, before all of the social media was available. We wrote letters as a way of keeping in communication, keeping in contact. I left home when I was fairly young and lived overseas for so long, but my brothers and my parents all wrote letters to me. And so I wrote, we were letter writers. So there was a habit of writing, but it was sort of functional. We never thought of it as really a creative endeavor, but it was something that we wanted to do in order to keep in contact. I think it was after I became an academic where I had to write papers and present lectures and whatever that writing became, it was still functional, but it was a way of expressing ideas and exploring ideas. Certainly, my time in the research department at the international headquarters of the Baha'i Faith in Haifa, Israel, where I served for some 27 years, it honed my writing skills because much of what my assignment there was to respond to questions about different aspects of Baha'i thought and the like, and to synthesize and pull together the concepts. So I think that's what got me 
writing routinely but and routinely to explore ideas and I think this then naturally led to the books. What was the first book that you produced that was for the general population or general audience? The first book was one that I wrote with my husband Peter and it was called Advancement of Women a Baha'i Perspective and both of us were quite passionate about this subject and over the years had given talks at universities and to the general public as well as to Baha'i groups on this subject. And so we felt like it was time to set down some of our, our ideas and to look at them at a different level, to explore them and to analyse them, these ideas, and to set them down. We completed that, I think it was about 1998. And I went from there to doing a biography about the daughter of the of Baha'u'llah, who was the founder of the Baha'i faith. And then I wrote one about the, the destiny of America in terms of its involvement with the transformation of society and the like. And it went on from there. (laughs) And Janet, A World Without War is your most recent book, and it's a collaborative work with Hoda Mahmoudi, who's the Baha'i Chair for World Peace at the University of Maryland. So what inspired you two to collaborate and initiate this project? Well, there were a number of things, really. The Baha'i Chair has an international advisory board and I've been serving on that board for for a number of years and so have had quite a lot of contact with Hoda Mahmoudi who's the professor. But before I go into our ideas it might be useful to say a little bit about the Baha'i Chair for World Peace. It's a privately endowed chair It was established as an initiative of the University of Maryland in 1990. It's part of the University Centre for International Development and Conflict Management. It's an academic research unit. The Baha'i Chair is an academic research unit at the University of Maryland. And its program involves conducting and publishing research, running seminars in the fields of Baha'i studies and world peace. And it does this within an interdisciplinary context. Its programs are really, it has a broad perspective of peace. And it engages with academics and leaders of thought whose fields of study and research impinge on peace and its current programs have a number of different themes. One is structural racism and prejudice, another is equality of women, a third relates to the environment and the environmental issues, another peace and security and so on. So the aim is to identify barriers to peace and through consultation and discussion with these visiting 
scholars to begin to generate some possible solutions to the issues facing society. And there's a growing publications endeavour where some of the findings of these various programs are now beginning to be shared with the wider public. So basically, the aim was to do something that might support the work of the Baha'i Chair. We've been talking about this for years, but early in 2018, we got serious. We had a serious discussion about if we're going to do something on peace, what is it? And so consultations coincided in 2018. They coincided with some of the widespread discussion and thoughtful reflection about the causes of war and its impact on peoples and nations that took place around the time of the 100th anniversary of the end of World War One. Now, in Australia, I don't know about in the United States, but in Australia, the media was just fixated on this subject. It's a very, very interesting subject, the state of the world that existed in the years leading up to the First World War and then the things that transpired after the war. So that was one of the things. We thought this is something very interesting to look at in detail. And we were also interested in the fact that it was during this period of rapid social change and war and conflict and the like that Abdu'l-Bahá, the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith, was actively engaged in promoting an all-inclusive vision for global peace. And he did this through his talks, through the, uh, his contacts with people, particularly at the very end of his life, he wrote two very interesting letters, de detailed letters on the subject of peace to a peace organisation at The Hague, known as the Central Organisation for a Durable Peace at The Hague. These two letters become known to Baha'is as tablets or letters to the Hague. So we thought it, it would be interesting to examine what was happening in the world, the efforts that were being made towards peace during that same period as a framework for considering the continuing relevance and significance of Abdu'l-Bahá's contribution to the discourses for peace. As we were researching the historical background of the period, we became really fascinated by the story of the events that surrounded how Abdu'l-Bahá's letters came to be written and also the unusual arrangements that he made for their delivery to this peace organization at The Hague. Now, Janet, is that Center for Durable Peace in The Hague, is that still in existence today? No, it isn't. 
the peace movement in Europe became really active after the Napoleonic Wars. They were looking for some other way of resolving conflict other than war. In the latter part of the 19th century, there were a number of peace groups that held meetings and congresses, mostly in Europe. Some of them were attracted people who were sort of friends of peace, and others involved parliamentarians and lawyers who were really interested in legal issues. They were looking at the possibility of using arbitration as a way. There was a lot of stuff happening. Then at the very end of the 19th century, actually 1899, and then again in 1907, there were large peace gatherings called by the Tsar of Russia. These two gatherings took place at The Hague, and they were interested in laying down rules for war. They also took up the question of arbitration. They were limited in what they were able to achieve, although some of the conventions that were signed concerning the conduct of war were very important and have continued in practice. They were built on the Geneva Convention and things like that. But they were not the kind of meetings where decisions could be made. There was no way of following up and there was not much political will. On the other hand, public opinion was really gung-ho and interested in looking at alternatives for war. So there were various kinds of non-political peace groups who were anxious to find ways to change the, the thinking. So the politicians, the people who gathered at these meetings, at the early meetings at The Hague, were not willing to give up the idea of some kind of gathering where discussion would take place at an international level on peace. And so they had in mind that around 1915, they'd call another of these gatherings at The Hague. However, World War One broke out and that sort of interrupted this aim. However, the Dutch peace movement, which was very strong, and uh, working together with the Swiss, they decided that you couldn't just sit and do nothing. Something really had to be done. In 1915, they called a gathering of people. It was a much smaller one with a view to establishing a committee that would work like a, a clearinghouse and also to promote discussion about peace throughout the world with a view to identifying ideas that 
would be important when peace finally came at the end of, of the First World War, such that it would improve the chances of it being a sustainable peace, a durable peace. So they wrote a manifesto and other material, and it was sent throughout the world. Actually, the New York Times reports this gathering in 1915 in one of its issues. It was interesting because the gist of the story was that this group was meeting in secrecy because there were those present were from both sides of the conflict, if you will, and this was a very challenging thing to do in the time of war at that time. Their aim was not to negotiate an end to the existing war, but rather to look longer term and to generate ideas that had the potential for decisions to be made about peace that would be a durable peace rather than just the end of conflict. So when the war finally ended in 1918 and the peacemakers gathered in Paris for the the conference, there were competing ideas about what should happen. The group in The Hague had hoped that their organisation might become the way forward. There were more people in support of the ideas promoted for the introduction of the League of Nations, and in the end, they won out. And so the Central Organisation for a Durable Peace at The Hague, its activities tended to sort of atrophy. They declined and they went on to other things. However, many of the ideas that were generated by the group and that were received from different organisations and countries throughout the world as a result of their manifesto, they fed in to the consultations at the peace conference in Paris and some of them are reflected in the Treaty of Versailles. So I'm speaking with Janet Kahn, who from 1976 to 1983 directed the program in counseling psychology at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. And from 1983 to 2000, she served in the research department at the international headquarters of the Baha'i Faith in Haifa, Israel. And Janet has published several books. Her latest collaborative effort is called A World Without War, Abdul Baha and the Discourse for Global Peace. So, Janet, what do you want readers to come away with after reading the book? There are several things. This was a really good question. It got me thinking because it's one thing to write a book and then it's another thing to sort of sit back and reflect on what it is that's really important, at least important to me. And there are a number of things. One is what the book provides is an enlarged perspective on the Baha'i conception of peace. And within this context, it seemed to me that attaining a world without war 
is not just a utopian dream, but with goodwill and effort, it can be built. I think that's the thing. It can be built, but step by step. We don't have the expectation that it happens immediately. It's a long-term perspective. So that was one of the things that I felt was interesting and quite useful. The second relates to the contribution that Abdul Baha, the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith, the contribution that he made to the discourse for global peace. It's interesting to know about Abdul Baha. He was nine years old when his father, Baha'u'llah, the founder of the faith, and some of his closest companions and family were exiled. They were sent into exile from Iran in the middle of the 19th century. And Abdu'l-Bahá was nine years old when this happened. And he remained a prisoner or in confinement until the early years of the 20th century when the Ottoman Empire began to collapse and the Turkish constitution was reinstated. At that stage, all religious and political prisoners were freed. Despite this way of life, or maybe perhaps because of it, he had a great commitment to peace and a lifelong commitment to promoting the teachings of his father, especially those with an emphasis on peace. Abdu'l-Bahá was a keen observer of the state of the world. And once he was released from confinement, he set out to visit the West. He was confined in Palestine, which at that stage was a outpost of the the former Ottoman Empire. He began to travel in the West. He went to Europe, he went to England, and to North America, to the United States and Canada. And he was traveling for several years. And during his travels, he met with groups of people, he gave lectures and presentations, and he spoke about the teachings for peace, the teachings for a new way of life that had been introduced by his father, Baha'u'llah. It was evident, it's evident when you look at his the things that he wrote, the presentations that he gave, that he was a keen observer of world events. He knew what was happening. He anticipated the outbreak of the First World War, and he said so when interviewed by the media. And then he assured them that this wasn't just some sort of prophecy, but it was based on his analysis of the state of the world. So it was based on on logic and reality. He met with peace groups when he was in the United States. One of the reasons that he undertook 
this visit to the US was to participate in a peace conference, an important peace conference on international arbitration that was held at Lake Mahonk in upstate New York. And this took place in May of 1912. It was a gathering, a very interesting gathering of leaders of thought. It was an international gathering. There were parliamentarians, there were members of Congress, there were businessmen and academics, all interested in the notion of peace and ways of bringing peace about. When Abdu'l-Bahá was in, in North America, he also talked at universities. He was at Stanford University in Columbia, Howard University, and many other places. Everywhere he went, he talked about the requirements for peace. He saw it as the pressing need of the age. And he set out a vision of what was necessary in order to accomplish peace. And it's sort of within this context that these two letters that he wrote to the executive committee of the Central Organization for a Durable Peace at The Hague were written in 1919-1920. The other thing that I think is interesting is that Abdu'l-Bahá was not a well-known historical figure, and yet his commitment to the promotion of peace, his vision of what needed to be done in order to accomplish peace, the issues that were associated with peace, like the elimination of prejudice and the equality of women as a prerequisite, the importance of justice, the importance of universal education. It was a broad view of peace that was being promoted. And I think the other thing that was interesting was that in his talks and in his writings, it seemed to me that his strategy was to enlarge the discussion and to broaden understanding of what's involved in bringing about peace and to engage with other people in conversation. So it wasn't that his approach was authoritarian, in fact, quite the opposite, but it was an approach that sought to engage action and to engage consultation and to engage people in working for peace. I guess I have a follow-on question, and that is the prerequisites that you refer to, the equality of women, universal education, the elimination of all sorts of prejudice, those are so obviously relevant to today. I guess that's the other thing, is that this is still a contribution for people to work toward for peace today. Is that a a true statement? Uh, Most certainly. Although Abdu'l-Bahá was 
a figure associated with the late 19th and early 20th century. There's no time restriction, if you will, placed on his ideas. I think his ideas were seminal. They drew on and they elaborated the ideas of his father, Baha'u'llah, whose teachings were designed to make it possible to create a world, a modern world, where these issues of race and gender and inequality and lack of justice and unbridled nationalism, religious strife, all these kinds of things which which bedevil the world today could be resolved. There's a contemporary relevance to Abdu'l-Bahá's ideas. And I think there's also much that can be learned from his approach. Because, well, in relation to the central organization for a durable peace at The Hague, when he wrote his first letter to them and had it delivered, it was read by some of the members of the central organization. And they liked some of what he said and they had difficulty they you know they they weren't so keen on some of the other things that he said and they wrote him in response they responded to Abdu'l-Bahá's letter and they set out the things they had in common and the things where they their, their views diverged and what did he do he sat and he wrote them another letter and he focused in on the important things that the Baha'is had in common with this group. He praised the group for its commitment to peace because it was one of the major issues of the day. He set out in detail some of the really constructive things they were doing, but he didn't argue He didn't say to them, look, you really haven't understood what I meant or this or that or the other. But his approach was to find what they had in common and to build a relationship, an interaction by discussing the things that they had in common. At the same time, he outlined what he felt was really needed. He said, look, everybody knows that peace is important. Everybody knows it. But it's not enough for it just to be an intellectual idea. There has to be some way of encouraging people to put into practice this idea, to work for it in a really positive way. And so he encourages, in his second letter to the group at The Hague, he encourages them to search for ways of harnessing a power for implementation. He does that, and then he explains the approach that the Baha'is take. So you see, it's a very 
courteous, very cordial way of proceeding, which is likely in contemporary discourse to be able to take a conversation beyond the initial yes, no, yes, no kind of towers that we're sometimes put into when we try to have a conversation, a deep conversation about a serious subject. So, Janet, would you like to read an excerpt from the book? I would, actually. This, too, I I found interesting because, I mean, I've seen authors, people who've written novels and that, select a juicy extract, (laughs) usually with a bit of drama. But our book was not like that. It was more, I think, analytical and whatever. But I've chosen something from the the second letter to The Hague, where Abdu'l-Bahá links his ideas about the importance of what he described as unity of conscience. Okay, I've got to go back a bit first, though. In talking about what's needed for peace, He says clearly, and I've just mentioned, that it's not enough just to say, to affirm that, that we've got to have peace, we've got to have peace. But what's required, he talks about a sense of personal and moral responsibility for us to kind of see as a duty the implementation of peace and in the letters to the Hague he refers to this as unity of conscience so not only do individuals need to act on this their understanding of the importance of peace this sense of duty must be something that grows that more and more people embrace such that we get to the point of having in society a unity of conscience where many people, a vast majority of the people, are willing to see peace as a moral duty. So in the section I'm going to read, there's a link between the concept of unity of conscience and the power of implementation, which is the other point that he makes. Okay, the tablet that Abdu'l-Bahá writes. Today, the benefits of universal peace are recognized amongst the people, and likewise the harmful effects of war are clear and manifest to all. But in this matter, knowledge alone is far from sufficient. A power of implementation is needed to establish it throughout the world. You should therefore, now he's giving them advice what to do. You should therefore consider how the compelling power of conscience can be awakened so that this lofty ideal may be translated from the realm of thought into that of reality. For it is clear and evident that the execution of this mighty endeavor, that's peace, is impossible through ordinary human feelings, but requireth the powerful sentiments of the heart. 
to transform its potential into reality. And then he steps back and puts his discussion into a slightly different context. He says, indeed, all on earth know that an upright character is praiseworthy and acceptable and that baseness of character is blameworthy and rejected, that justice and fairness are favoured and agreeable, whilst cruelty and tyranny are unacceptable and rejected. Notwithstanding all this, all people, but for a few, are devoid of a praiseworthy character and bereft of a sense of justice. And now he focuses in on the power of conscience. The power of conscience is therefore needed and spiritual sentiments are required that souls may feel compelled to evince a good character. It is our firm belief that the power of implementation in this great endeavour is the penetrating influence of the word of God and the confirmations of the Holy Spirit. So it all comes back to, as he says, the word of God and the influence of the Holy Spirit. Yes. At the same time, he encourages the organization at The Hague in their activities to look for ways to harness implementation, to get people moving toward implementation. So it's not an either or. Peace takes the involvement and the approaches of many people and many traditions in order to attain its goal. So, Janet, where can people find A World Without War, Abdu'l-Bahá and the Discourse of Global Peace? There are two places that I know of. One is the Baha'i Bookstore, which you can find on the internet, www.baha'ibookstore, or one word, dot com, and then forward slash, a world without peace. And then the second is on Amazon. It's also available on Amazon. Well, Janet, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about your work and especially the newest book that's out, A World Without War, Abdu'l-Bahá and the Discourse of Global Peace with you and Hoda Mahmoudi. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Janet Khan, co-author of the book, A World Without War, Abdu'l-Bahá and the Discourse for Global Peace. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
and remembrance of thee is my remedy.
Won't you give them my warmest regards? Oh, my sister, when you see the leaf, ask her to watch over me from afar. And when you see the blessed beauty, won't you thank him for the new heart? Well, I know some. See you face to face Oh, my sister Won't you see that my children Are reared in the arms of his love And if you can Help strengthen the weak May see the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, I know someday I'll see you face to face. I'll sometimes wonder why, oh, why. I guess I'll know. Everybody got a story to tell The difference is some people really want to tell it and sell it Try to increase their self-worth Forgetting that it has not changed since birth But we all gonna worry about status, right? It's a never-ending struggle So I'm never satisfied But I'll be the first to strategize Cause in order for the truth to catch on People need to see it work I try to read between the lines and find balance I look around, we're all presented with the same challenge But I can't forfeit, I can't afford it I gotta figure this out before I reach the chorus 
I mean, pardon me, but I find it hard to see How this mentality first became a part of me It just isn't working, so I have to try something But my mistake was trying, never triumphant See, my power's going into everything man-made But what about the divine source that made man? Cause I got something that I can't sell, can't trade Material wealth ain't what makes you a made man You see, man tends to focus on the task at hand And has lost sight of the master plan And yo, I asked my man, what do you want to be? And he replied, alive And yo, I opened my eyes And saw that transformation Making the most is difficult When all I work for is only changing the physical Holding myself, blowing myself out of proportion Misplaced my portion from the ocean of his grace Super is what he made me to be And vision is what he gave me to see Said super is what he made me to be And vision is what he gave me to see The blessed beauty remains there for me His glory always present when I share stories It manifests Cause what I gained overseas was a spirit that just took a hold of me See I was told to be free, let my mind clear Now I have a better idea of who I will grow to be And I guarantee that you will notice me Even though you might not even know it's me I know that God gave each a purpose But we all gotta search way beneath the surface to find it Like trying to unearth the diamond That always appears with the most perfect timing But my shortcomings, I can't let them show So when it comes to my standards, I tend to set them low Leaving my potential boxed up, stocked up Within me, in a corner, in a room, locked shut I tell myself, yo, this just can't happen Cause I was raised not to just jump on the bandwagon Floating further from myself with every transaction Being tested from Thailand to Manhattan You tell me to stop when I have yet to start Yet to leave my mark with this thing called art Too blinded, running around in the dark, I was stopped And guided by my own counterpart, you see He set the example for me to do it He said, you need some help, I can lead you through it Don't need assistance, then I'll leave you to it The only thing I need is to see you do it Because super is what he made me to be And vision is what he gave me to see, you see Super is what he made me to be And vision is what he gave me to see And that's supervision, y'all This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.